This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. You're joined by me, Sam, today, and we have Carolyn Atkinson with us today. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you very much, Sam. Good to be here. It's lovely to have you. And your reputation has preceded you. In fact, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous before this podcast. Having looked up and spent a fair amount of time on your background, it is extensive. It is diverse. It is academic, which I think might have been the part that scared me. You were (laughs) an Oxford-trained economist. You've been a technology executive. You've been a senior policymaker across international economics and finance. You've been with Google, the US government, the IMF, the Bank of England. I mean, it is truly an extensive, broad list of career achievements, and I can't wait to get stuck into them today. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your career in your words. So I've always been interested in politics and economics from when I was a teenager or even younger. My father was a civil servant, an economist, a senior civil servant in the end at the Treasury. And I guess that helped to get me interested in it. And I obviously have a British accent. So you may wonder how come I've been able to work in the US Treasury and in the White House. But I was born in Washington, D.C. And I've also always been interested in the US and felt a connection there. And I always thought, well, Washington's the kind of center of economic and political power in the world. So those were formative influences. And then I like action and excitement. Journalism, of course, is brilliant for that. That's what I did very early in my career. But then I also felt I wanted to do more policymaking and not just write about what governments should be doing, but actually try to learn about them and influence them. And then I went to the IMF and I was a bit nervous because the reputation of the IMF is boring bureaucrats, but actually it was fascinating. We always were in the middle of a crisis. And so we'd be going to countries that were in crisis that wanted to borrow money, that wanted some advice that we were suggesting. And I really enjoyed that. And then one thing led to another. I met people at the IMF, David Lipton, earlier had interviewed Larry Summers, who was a Treasury Secretary and President of Harvard, and I'd interviewed him when I was on the Washington Post, actually, and he remembered me. And one thing led to another, and so they asked me to join the U.S. Treasury, which I did, and that was fascinating because it was at the time of the Asian financial crisis and... I was in the room with them and with Alan Greenspan and with others trying to figure out what on earth should be done in Korea and so on. It seemed like the biggest financial crisis ever. Of course, we've had some more since then. And then I guess the most exciting or the most rewarding and the most difficult job that I had was working for four years in President Obama's White House. And again, I knew people from other parts of my career. So I didn't plan any of this out. Opportunities arose and I tended to grab them. And at the White House, I happened there when there was another financial crisis. The day I joined actually was in August 2011, when the S&P had just downgraded US Treasury debt, which was extraordinary. 
And they've done that partly because of stuff going on in Congress, but also because there was a European crisis. And that mattered a lot. People wanted to understand it. I knew about financial crises, so I was immediately, I think on my first or second day, I went into the Oval Office. So that was amazing. And then Google was just a complete shift. They got in touch again through somebody I think I'd worked with years earlier at Treasury who'd then gone to Google. And they felt at that time they wanted to employ somebody who understood policy and policymakers as opposed to just lobbying. And so then I went there. Anyway, it's been a great ride. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, quite some ride. It sounds like many rides all in one long career. You mentioned Larry. Larry's, in fact, actually been on our podcast, and Larry is on the Motive Partners Global Advisory Council. You mentioned the IMS always in crisis, and that, that's something I want to come back to. But before we go there, you were born in D.C. I think you're in D.C. right now. That's right, yes. I came back here supposedly for two years in the 1980s, and we ended up just staying for various reasons. I haven't been there for a long, long time. On your appointment as President Obama's senior international economic advisor, I read what he was quoted to say. He said, Caroline is respected around the world for her understanding of how the global economy was, her tireless efforts to promote strong balance and sustainable growth, and her experience in managing international financial crises. I've got lots of questions on the topic, but I recently hosted a a panel, in fact, on leadership in crisis with a good friend, Adrian Harris, who used to work at the White House. Adrian and I have been exchanging emails not that long ago, just checking in. Wonderful. She's a great friend, so you must say hello. Oh, um, I will. She had many incredible things to say about President Obama. And the webinar we were on was all about leadership in crisis. And, And she just said he knew how to bring amazing people together and to get the best out of them without being a hierarchical leader. And I wondered, how would you describe President Obama? And what were some of the leadership qualities you observed and participated in? Well, he's very cool, mellow kind of guy, but he is serious-minded and hard-working. And so whenever you go into a meeting with him, you know he's fully briefed. He will ask you if there's any update, but it will betide you if you just say what you've already written to him because he will have read that. And he listens carefully to what everybody says and what their arguments are. And he's very clear about giving direction, actually. So his leadership style is this sort of calm, and obviously he's feeling emotion, but he's very calm and very good at pulling out from people what they really believe and making that a possibility. Now, you also don't feel that you can just sort of chatter on in his presence. Uh, He's very different from, say, I don't know, Bill Clinton or somebody who really wants to kind of dive into every, oh, Larry, for that matter. Larry loves to engage in every side of every argument. And Larry and I get along very well in a way because of that. But with President Obama, he's not wanting to waste time. He was very aware of how much there was that he needed to do. He also is pretty good at delegating to people. He doesn't feel that he has to have his final stamp on everything, although he did on the big decisions, but he was good at choosing people and then trusting them. During your time at the administration working with President Obama, you must have been through many highs and lows and wild parts of that journey. Can you tell us about some of those crises that you worked through and I guess some of the things that you did to drive change and growth in international markets? When I arrived in the White House in the middle of 2011, the euro crisis 
was just beginning and it was clear that there was going to be tremendous market pressure on banks and governments, especially in Southern Europe. You may remember the Greek crisis, Italy, mm. Spain, Portugal, were all caught up in this. And there was a sense in the United States that this was also very important for the global financial system. I do remember being in a meeting in the Situation Room once ahead of the 2012 spring meeting of the G8, which was chaired by the United States. In other words, President Obama was the chair. We had the meeting in Camp David. You may also know that 2012 is an election year in the United States. And, and somebody around the table, when we were discussing what we should be recommending to Europe and how we should be thinking about that, said, well, we can't want it more than they do. We can't want a solution more than they do. And somebody else said, well, maybe we do because we don't want a great financial collapse. And that's what we see is the risk if the euro falls apart. Apart from all of the political and social difficulties, you know, Greece is a NATO ally, quite a lot of Greek Americans. So actually, there's a political interest in the United States, what happens to Greece. And then there's terrible poverty and unemployment that happened and that would have been even worse if the euro had broken up. So a lot of my first year in the White House was focused on meeting people from Europe, talking to the policymakers. And I had the role of, later on, I had the role, and at that point, I sort of had the role on this issue of being the president's Sherpa. So there are summit meetings, as you may know, where leaders meet. And then all the leaders, and President Obama used to think this was pretty funny, all the leaders have Sherpas who prepare the negotiations and work through where are the difficulties, which are the issues that the leaders actually need to address. And leaders have tremendous power, I mean, leaders of countries, because they can see a big picture. And when they're together, they can make things happen that go beyond just what their staffs can negotiate. And that's something that in the US we were very aware of and very used to using its you know, soft power. It's not being used much now. You can never get somebody to do something that's not in their interests, but you try to figure out where interests overlap and how to work on that. And if there are seven or eight leaders in a room, which are the ones that are going to work together and so on and so on. Anyway, the other thing that amused President Obama was that every Sherpa has a so-called yak, which is a very <laughs> desired job in the government services. And I had a great team of yaks. So I had been working really hard to persuade the Europeans, the European leaders, and also working with the US Treasury that was led then by Tim Geithner to persuade the central banks and the finance officials that Anything that broke the Eurozone up would be more painful and difficult for all of the countries, including Germany, which was the tricky one, than any kind of support. And it was not obvious. I mean, there were so many phone calls between President Obama and Angela Merkel, and they liked each other a lot because they were both sort of cool, rational people. But Obama was always trying to persuade Angela Merkel to do something that was politically difficult in Germany, which was to support or you know, bail out Greece or support Italy or allow budget deficits to get bigger. And we had this crucial 
summit meeting in the spring of 2012 at Camp David, and the president decided to call together in his cabin the leaders of the four Eurozone members that were there, and not any of the others, which later really irritated all of the others. But anyway, so Angela Merkel, there were new leaders in Italy and France, which made a big difference. There was Mario Monti instead of Berlusconi in Italy. Hollande had just been elected. And they came together and each person, each leader had one person with them. We had two, because my colleague Mike Froman was the Sherpa then, but I was allowed in as well. And we had prepared the president to make all of these detailed arguments about what was happening in Greece that we felt probably the German system was not providing to Angela Merkel. And he brought them together and really helped to persuade her that going down a path of letting Greece leave the Eurozone was not a good idea. And, you know, all of these things are kind of hard to see in retrospect, but we had language then that everybody agreed to, that we then had to go and get the others to agree to, that was about the leaders all agreeing on the importance of growth. And that was a huge victory. And later on, I mean, obviously, everybody remembers Draghi doing the whatever it takes language that Mm. supported the euro. But having Angela Merkel support him a few days later politically was also important. So anyway, it was a real high. It was a bit complicated for me because my younger daughter was graduating from college from Yale. And of course, I needed to go and see her graduation at some point. But I also needed to write up and follow on what was happening. So I did that and then got a ride in a golf cart and then in a secret service van and whatever outside the perimeter and got in our car and drove all the way to Yale. So I made it for the family dinner or whatever it was. What a story, saving the economy and then being bungled into the back of a secret service van. Lovely. I also love the the reference to Sherpas, a good nod to the Himalayan heavy lifters. Absolutely. Um, I've just been watching the four-part series on Hillary Clinton. It's just fascinating. And and I could talk about it with you genuinely for hours for the sake of those that haven't watched it yet and are listening. I won't do that. (laughs) But her tenure as Secretary of State was nothing short of exceptional, I thought. And I didn't know as much about it until I watched the documentary. But she traveled the world and was an incredible ambassador for the US. Did you ever get to spend time with Hillary? Yes, I have. She's a very personable and also very serious, you know, takes her job seriously, as you were suggesting. And she would always have points that she wanted to make on a file card and so on. But she's very personable in the sense that I had spoken to her, actually. I'd interviewed with her at the beginning of the administration as to, you know, whether I'd go and work in the State Department, although for various reasons that didn't work out. But she always remembered my name. Why should she remember my name? You know, I was just one other person, staffer in the sit room or, or whatever. I didn't have many interactions with her directly. I did go with Mike Froman once to discuss a trade issue with her. And again, she was really bothered about, there was always this kind of debate between the trade people and the State Department. State Department always wants to reach a trade agreement as a kind of act of political friendship. And the trade people always have lots of problems with the various countries. They don't want to just hand out a trade agreement for that reason. They want to make sure that it's in the interests of the U.S. or U.S. workers, business, et cetera. So Mike was, uh, Mike Froman was 
I don't even remember which country it was. It was probably in the Arab Spring. We all wanted to be supportive and friendly and helpful to the countries in the Arab Spring. So Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, asked us to go round to the State Department to explain the position to her. And there was another occasion where we actually agreed with the State Department. I can't remember who was against it, DHS or something. Anyway, she just took the trouble to talk directly to the staffers. And I mean, Mike was very senior and later became a member of the cabinet. But, you know, she's just that sort of person. I don't think it helped her politically in the end because she was always really driven by policy and really interested to know what the policy people would recommend should be done. So I have a lot of respect for her. I mean, even just hearing those snippets have brought the documentary to life even more than I did. I thought the documentary did a great, great job. The director is a, a lady called Nanette Burstein, who's just awesome. She brings it to life. And I think unmasks someone who is grossly misunderstood and underappreciated. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. You've spoken a couple of times about Michael Froman. Michael's someone I've met in passing at the World Economic Forum and I think he was your predecessor. And he then left and became vice chair and president at Mastercard, which That's right. our listeners will know is a firm that we are very close to and is really one of the most incredible financial technology stories. I, you know, it, I don't even know the percentage of growth under Ajay Ann and Rick Hazelmanthwaite's leadership, but it's just been phenomenal. And I'm sure Michael is, is loving his, his time there. He left and went to MasterCard. You left and went to Google. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your time at Google for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, a far more complex business than I think people give credit to. Equally, deeply ingrained in US policy, and you were the global head of policy there, which is, I imagine, a wildly complicated role to have undertaken. So tell us a little bit bit about it. Well, in a way, it was fantastic because I remember when I was interviewed by Sundar Pichai, who's now the CEO of the whole of Alphabet, which owns Google, and by others there. I was coming to the interview from a trip with the president to Asia, and I'd been in the bubble. We'd been to an APEC meeting in the Philippines, and then I was in Malaysia, and then I took a flight to San Jose for an interview the next day, checked into the hotel, and I suddenly thought, well, I don't have to do anything. I'm not trying to write talking points or, you know, do any other kind of work and everybody else is busy on this trip. So it was like this feeling of lightness. And I called Larry Summers to ask his advice about the interviews the next day. I walked around in the sunshine in November in Palo Alto. And it was like, <laughs> it was like this really dreamy environment. And I persuaded them to let me not join right away because I knew that that would be too much. And I stayed in Washington. I, I started working for Google in 2016. And I felt very excited about it because, as I think I said to the president, you know, it's not just any old company. It's cutting edge. And you're absolutely right about what a complex business it has. And I didn't really know about that when I got there. I mean, the fact that such a huge proportion of its revenues come from advertising and how that all plays in with the rest of it. 
was very interesting to learn about. Anyway, I got a bit more brought down to earth early on at Google. I went on a trip to India and also to Europe. And especially in Europe, I realized that whereas in the US, it was pre-tech lash time when I was there. In Europe, people hated American tech companies. And they felt that they were out of control, that they stole data. And I had this image that in Germany that when people talked about data, all the data that Google was amassing, which obviously lots of companies do, but it was very real to them about a tech company, an American tech company. And I said, people talk about it as if we're harvesting organs. You know, we're mm. taking something that is immoral and deadly. And of course, you know, data is not like that. So anyway, when I came back, I talked to the people at Google about a number of big issues. Tax was one, which of course is rearing its head now. And competition, obviously, they were already aware of that in a way. And privacy and the worries about the content that are on platforms, because not so much Google itself, the search engine, but YouTube, obviously. There was a very libertarian view of more or less anything goes. And I had a great team all around the world, but I had a kind of sense that it hadn't quite yet dawned on people in Silicon Valley how big the challenges were going to be. And I think it now has is dawning on them. I think Google is a fantastic company and it has a wonderful product. I, I don't know so much about the social media companies or friends of mine work at Facebook, but you know, where would we be without Google? We're all using that. Actually, I had a lovely experience once when I was going to Brussels and I was showing my passport and the guy at immigration said, what do you do? You know, you have on business, where do you work? And I said, Google. And he said, oh, so you know an awful lot. He was kind of joking about, you can find out anything you need to know. So that's something that is really important and important for the company and for all of the tech companies to understand. And I think they do understand it now. And Sundar Pichai is also a very kind of down to earth and humble and smart person. But when you're in Silicon Valley, the life feels differently. The world looks different <laughs> from that beautiful place. And I think that uh, that bubble was getting burst. So I was there during that period of time, which was incredibly, you know, which was very interesting. But they have a ways to go. I read a great quote the other day saying that the tech companies, the big ones now, began as David versus Goliath. And so Google was fighting against Microsoft and they had all sorts of, you know, fights with people, different companies. Actually, Sundar made friends with Microsoft and that was very important. That was happening just as I got there. Mm. But it took them a while to realize that they were actually Goliath. And I remember somebody saying to me when I was there, well, you know, we're just a quirky company. And I thought, hmm, the top five stock market capitalization, you know, you're not going to be viewed as just quirky. But of course, they have this innovative bent. And it's the sense of can do that has made them able to invent all these different things and do things. Very different from a policy mindset. You know, when you're in government, it's always about the art of the possible. And you want to stretch that, you know, you want to think, where can we find an overlap that 
gets countries to a place that they wouldn't have got there without the negotiation. You're always trying to, especially in the US, where you know, we always have big ambitions about how to make the world better, how to make the world better for America, but also for the world itself, which, of course, other countries don't always enjoy. But if you're in government, you're really trying to push the envelope, but negotiate and find the art of the possible. And if you're a technology innovator, you don't want to be constrained by the possible. You want to think about the impossible. Wow. And what a journey that must have been from an interview with with Sundar himself through the global maze of not just Google, but of the burgeoning world of data and analytics and policymaking. And what a time to be doing it. Speaking of data, the world is changing at the rate of knots and digitization or digital singularity, as I think we're fast approaching, is something that that all organizations are having to contend with. How are you seeing things like COVID affecting business in the US at the moment? Well, it's obviously a terrible tragedy, first of all, for all of those who are sick and those who've died and their families and so on. Secondly, And this was not obvious at the beginning and is sort of very sad thing. COVID certainly here in the US is hurting the lower income and more vulnerable people, inflicting more damage on them, their lives and their livelihoods than on the better off. And, you know, there's some new data that show that people who were in the lower income levels, their income, their spending obviously dropped with all of the unemployment and businesses closing. It picked up again with the particular help from government, the stimulus checks and so on in the US, but those are going to run out. And those are typically the workers that can't work remote and that provide services for all the rest of us. So I think that, of course, there are going to be lots of opportunities for digital companies in particular, for online companies, there will be opportunities. And they have been a lifeline for many people. But we also need society to come together to make sure that this doesn't drive even more of a wedge between the haves and the have-nots. And the other thing, of course, that's been happening in the United States is this sort of racial awakening, which, again, we have to hope that that continues and that a lot of businesses now pushed by their employees in some cases are taking steps to be more aware and making all sorts of promises, giving some money, but making all sorts of promises about how they will change themselves to face up to racism and to do anti-racism. But I think we're at a time of a really big inflection point with the combination of what's happening in the world and a retreat from globalization, the tensions between the United States and China, which I think are very dangerous for the global economy and for peace in a way, and for the two countries. We've got the climate challenge, the pandemic, and then there's real problems that have grown up or maybe people have become more aware of the problems of inequality and inequities and systemic inequities, systemic racism, certainly in the United States, and I think elsewhere as well, including in the UK. Of course, I feel very frustrated not to be in government because there are so many things, and I think there really is an important role for government. Of course, there's an important role also for business. I mean, in the United States, you know, that's what 
keeps the economy strong, that there are so many great entrepreneurs and so many companies that are flexible and innovative and so on. But it's going to be a really challenging time. I completely agree with you. And I think there is some positive to come from this. The racial awakening is right at the top of that list. But companies can no longer be judged by promises. They need to be judged by metrics. And we need to have much tougher ways of policing that to ensure that the companies really are adhering to what they say they're going to do. And speaking actually of metrics, I would love your thought as an economist on this. I read recently that the U.S. personal savings tracker, I'm not sure what they call it, was, I think, average level of 8.2% in March. In April, it rose to 12%. And then in May, it was at a world record historic high of 33%. And when I heard it, I just thought, you know, maybe there's some hope for things like saving patterns and ultimately the longer term issue of things like the pension crisis. Do you see any other silver linings that we might not be aware of? Well, I would turn it upside down because I'm quite a skeptic about all of the fears of future fiscal crises. I think a lot of the problems that have grown up over the past decade have come because there was excessive fiscal austerity. Obviously in the UK, that was George Osborne and Cameron. And then in Europe, as we discussed, that was very much a sort of German point of view. In the US, we were also hobbled a bit by a concern about the deficit after the global financial crisis so that it took a long time for the economy to recover. It did recover and unemployment became so low just before COVID. Right now, that extraordinary rise in savings amongst individuals was because we couldn't spend. And this interesting work shows that it was really the higher income, the top quartile, top quarter of people whose spending really collapsed in the spring because many things that those people, including myself, spend money on, like restaurants, travel, personal services, were not possible. So I think some of that will come back. But We've had this strange phenomenon of financial markets really being supported and buoyed by the extraordinary policy response, especially by the Fed and other monetary authorities, whilst the economy is still looking pretty dismal and unemployment is extraordinarily high. And looking ahead, I think that the wild card from the economic point of view, the real wild card, of course, is what happens to COVID. The wild card from the economic point of view is what happens to consumer and to some extent business spending. Do people feel confident and go back and spend again and draw down those savings or do they not? And I think that there are many people who will certainly change their spending patterns, at least until there's better treatment or until the fear of COVID is diminished for one reason or another. And in the meantime, I think then the governments need to be filling that hole. And they have done an amazing job in Europe as well this time. That's been, I think, a real lesson that has been taken to heart in the UK and in Europe. And here, of course, we've had this massive stimulus bill, but that was in March. Probably more needs to be done. I think it would be terrific if you had spending on, you know, in the US, you have terrible roads. Sometimes you have bridges that fall down. We're the richest country in the world. We couldn't figure out how to deal with COVID. There's a great need for investment in infrastructure. I've been living 60 miles out of Washington, D.C. I have to do this podcast coming back into D.C., because the internet, the broadband out there doesn't exist. So I have a satellite and it's mm. not very good. So there are a lot of room for investments. I mean, in the UK, you, you know this better than most, 
we can't get anything fixed. We can't even put an additional runway down to ensure that our economy stays buoyant. It's it's a yeah. joke. Yet in China, they can build a bridge linking two cities in nine days. If we don't keep up with infrastructure requirements, we're going to all be left behind. It's a very real concern. Yeah. So we're coming to the end, Caroline. I want to finish on a question I actually asked Adrian on a recent webinar. I asked what piece of advice she would give her younger self. And Adrian's answer was that the worst people can tell you is no. And if you believe in something, you should just charge right at it. What's your advice to your younger self? My advice would be to be bold, be confident, more confident, and fight for what you believe in. And I would have another piece of advice to my younger self, which is enjoy. Go for things that you really love to do because you'll do them better and you'll have a better life. As someone who started their career in something they weren't enjoying that much, I'm wholeheartedly subscribed to that. I think you're absolutely right. And it's obvious when you work with people who love what they do. And Caroline, it's clear to me from our conversation today, you love what you do and you've loved what you've done. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. This has been a truly memorable podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.